The ocean can be our greatest friend in the fight against climate change. Oceans absorb almost a third of carbon emissions and 90% of excess heat generated. But the oceans are reaching a tipping point with plastic pollution, acidification, warming and deoxygenation. This is threatening the marine ecosystems and biodiversity. It is even pushing several island nations to the brink as they face a risk of sinking and disappearing. Can a sustainable blue economy help us turn the tide? Let's dive in. You're listening to Beyond Business with Vatsila, a series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to our global problems. Joining me today are Martin Köring, head of the World Ocean Initiative and senior manager for sustainability, climate change and natural resources at Economist Impact, and Andrea Morgante, vice president, performance services at Vertsila. Gentlemen, thank you for joining. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much. With more than three billion people in the world relying on the oceans for their livelihood, and nearly 80% percent of world trade dependent on the seas. A blue economy is no doubt the need of the hour. But people have differing opinions on the matter. Martin, do you think economic development and ocean health make a compatible proposition? Yes, definitely. The value of the blue economy, you're talking about 2.5 trillion US dollars per year. That's about 3% of GDP already. So if the ocean actually was a country, it would be the eighth largest economy in the world. And natural capital from the ocean alone would be valued 24 trillion US dollars. I would say the lack of viewing the ocean in economic terms, as well as environmental and social terms, that has meant that we have underestimated the value of the ocean economy. So look just at the opportunity in aquaculture, renewable energy, blue carbon, the ecosystem services that the ocean provides. Just kind of absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere, the climate change mitigation potential has enormous economic value as well. So definitely ocean health and economic development of the ocean can very well go hand in hand. But what are then the key opportunities around the blue economy? We look at several areas, but I would highlight five. I mean, first of all, we have blue foods. I mean, the enormous opportunity that comes from sustainable aquaculture it can really help us to reduce our reliance on unsustainable wild fisheries, but also actually can help us to reduce our need for land-based uh, protein, for example. Then we have blue energy, and this is really kind of harnessing kind of offshore wind power, of course, but also alternative power sources such as tidal, wave, green hydrogen as well, produced offshore. All these will reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, which has obviously caused enormous problems through global heating, sea level rise, ocean acidification. And then we have ocean data and tech. So we have this opportunity to really get uh, innovative in the ocean economy, to, to bring data collection uh, there in big data, AI, sensors. You know, accurately monitoring ecosystem health is absolutely vital. Uh, and also monitoring the impact um, that climate change has on the ocean, for example. But also things like fish health, coral reef health. So the data opportunity is enormous. And then, of course, we have the rise of blue finance, the rise of these kind of new funding sources for ocean health. And finally, there's a huge opportunity to really harness these ocean-based natural assets, mangroves, seagrass, tidal marshes. It's really an enormous opportunity to build these blue carbon markets. So there is a market opportunity as well to kind of provide economic incentives for the restoration of these blue carbon ecosystems. And, you know, if you just look at the global demand for carbon credits, It's set to increase 15-fold between 2020 levels and 2030, 
And that's going to be worth, at the end of this decade, about 50 billion US dollars. So this is another huge economic opportunity that can help to restore ocean health. So Andrea, assessing this market opportunity from the private sector point of view, what kind of potential do you see in the blue economy? It's hard not to repeat on what Martin already mentioned. And maybe the first one I would mention very clearly also because we have, as a company, we participate in many of these initiatives. It's really the energy, the energy side, the marine and renewable energy is set to grow heavily going forward. We heard about an agreement between uh, Equinor and uh, RWE and, uh, and for the production of um, hydrogen from gas and, uh, and the use of pumping back CO2 under the seabed. Another aspect is uh, you know, using electrolyzers, electrolyzers to, to produce uh, hydrogen. They will require a massive amount of renewable electricity to, to be operated. And um, again, all of that is expected to come largely from um, wind power, offshore wind power. Another aspect is fisheries. From a very practical perspective, we, we have been seeing uh, very interesting developments where fisheries currently, for instance, based on, on coastal areas, uh, fjords, even thinking of North, North Sea, for instance, are moved out offshore and leveraging on technologies originally developed many years ago for oil and gas industry. Um, that, of course, requires, could open up a much, much bigger scale of production. Um, it requires also a level of technology um, that makes it very interesting for many companies to, um, to, to join in. Um, and it ultimately creates uh, great opportunities. Another area is tourism and uh, recreational industries. I mean, they've been using the ocean before and they're committed to do it better and better uh, going forward, uh, committing to decarbonization targets and, and always in the spirit of uh, you know, environmental development. Um, this is also another area, in my opinion, that we, it's already lively today, will keep thriving going forward. So no doubt the opportunities are huge, but I'd like to ask you both, what do you think are the key barriers to building a blue economy? Andrea, maybe you go first. One thing, uh, maybe it's, it's the, it might sound almost trivial, but lack of data and information. I mean, we don't know uh, enough about the ocean, and uh, that is an area that needs to be heavily developed. Then uh, I would say policy regulatory gaps needs to be closed. And, and what is happening now is that then you see regional regulations coming up that can be very different from one place to another. So they're useful if we're talking about uh, coastal activities, but these differences become problematic. If you're talking about international activity, intercontinental activities, as shipping, for instance, is as, as one of the industries affected. Limited access to finance, it's extremely important um, to, uh, to develop a blue economy, to have uh, access to uh, significant investments. For instance, uh, both on the fishery side and the energy side require significant amounts of money. And I would say another aspect that's extremely important is the coordination and cooperation. Many of the things they're talking about have never done before. And you don't have a single company uh, having all the competencies required to do it. Um, we have, uh, again, one of the best cases that I've seen in the past has been uh, ZEETS, uh, Zero Emission Energy Distribution at Sea, which was a project we, we have started as Barthida together with uh, many important players um, uh, in Norway and Denmark. Uh, bringing together competencies that have never actually been working together before, uh, um, from 
you know, oil and gas expertise to shipping expertise to um, oil and gas structural engineering and so forth to figure out a way to make possible um, generation of uh, renewable energy at sea and offshore at, at scale uh, and, and to a scale such that then you would, for instance, among other things, be able to um, greenify um, chipping in the, in the area. Uh, it was a, a fantastic uh, experience, and it only it's just one example uh, that shows how, in order to enable the economy, you need to also bring together these different players and coordinate and, co- and cooperation among them. And Martin, your thoughts on the barriers? I just wanted to um, to echo some of the points you know, that Andrea made. Uh, I would say one of the key barriers is clearly the governance issues around the ocean. I mean, the current governance uh, of the seas is, is, is very piecemeal. We have multiple organizations for, for kind of different issues. We have, for example, the International Seabed Authority that governs mm. the seabed minerals exploitation. But then we have the International Maritime Organization that regulates shipping. So there's a lot of kind of different approaches uh, that isn't kind of unified. So there are some issues that then fall through the gaps because of that. So the need for this high seas treaty is absolutely vital. There's no legal mechanism, for example, to establish kind of comprehensive marine protected areas on the high seas. There's no global framework to conduct these kind of environmental impact assessments that are absolutely important for you know assessing those kind of activities taking place in waters outside of you know national jurisdiction. So I would like to echo that point. And then just on some of the points that Andrea mentioned in terms of um, in terms of lack of data, I would I would add to that, and there is in some areas a lack of data, but it's actually the sharing, working together to harness the data, valuing the data that's absolutely crucial. That's often uh, lacking. There is finance now, which is you know the blue finance opportunity now through you know blended finance. Lots of you know organizations like the Asian Development Bank and others are, are putting money on the table, but it's the it's the pipeline of bankable projects. And I often hear one of the biggest issues is not so much the lack of finance, it is the lack of bankable projects. The projects that banks and investors feel like and sense that can really uh, be a good return on investment. Um, a key barrier that often people don't talk about is the lack of you know the a positive narrative about the ocean and that goes back to you know all the things we're talking about are almost like always de- delving in and diving into the ocean economy people outside uh, often you know in the economy you know in, in the in the policymakers and so on talk about the ocean as a uh, as a risk and in mostly negative terms you know it's you know climate change it's sea level rise uh, all these species being lost and the huge level of pollution you see all these plastics in the ocean and it's all seen so negatively so it's like the, the you know the storm surges tsunamis um, and all these kind of things the collapse of fisheries it's, it's all these bad images you know the coral reef systems that disappear and so on i think you know what needs to happen and which has been a barrier in the past is we need to overcome this negative narrative and turn into a positive narrative and about the things we just talked about. You know, there's huge opportunity. There's lots of uh, silver linings here. Uh, all these problems have also made us more focused on, you know, conservation, managing risk, building capacity for adaptation, resilience, and these kind of things. But when we need to tell the story is this the story of the sustainable ocean economy and how it can create jobs, how it can be good for the economy, how it can be good for us in terms of viewing the ocean. Uh, and there I mentioned tourism, you know, really embracing the ocean as something positive. There is clearly increased interest in building a blue economy with the help of blue finance, clean tech solutions and conservation. We'll talk about all that in just a bit. Stay with us.
Welcome back. The International Finance Corporation says that protecting oceans and preserving clean water resources are not just a moral imperative, they're also a great financial opportunity. The IFC estimates that by 2030 the ocean economy will grow to 3 trillion US dollars and provide 40 million jobs. So, are we investing enough really in the blue economy? Martin If we just look at the, you know, sustainable development goals, and you know, the, uh, we know that most of them are clearly underinvested, and the, particularly the one uh, that is about the oceans. But there is a life below water SDG, SDG 14, and that has consistently attracted the least attention from investors, and that's really undermining ocean health. But it also means that policymakers and investors have not even started to harness the full potential of the ocean economy. Perfect segue to the next question nature-based solutions that's something that you have been underlining in your work could you elaborate a bit on you know how this is so important for building a blue economy yeah you know what we have been talking about is harnessing the ocean as as a solution to the three planetary crises that we face so we have the climate crisis of course we have the biodiversity crisis your nature loss and we have the pollution crisis Uh, and for that, the ocean has solutions that you know are very much kind of nature-based. They can help us to complement the technological solutions. So as we know, you know the ocean absorbs about 25 to 30 percent of global CO2 emissions. So it's, it's there's huge opportunity there in terms of harnessing that opportunity and restoring the opportunity uh, for you know the ocean to be a carbon sink. And then of course there is uh, you know this huge opportunity of restoring some of these ecosystems, you know, for example, coastal wetlands, you know, 14% of all the mitigation potential that, you know, that we have in the world uh, comes from those coastal wetlands to really help us to, to keep global heating below two degrees Celsius. And there's also the adaptation opportunity. A lot of the time people talk about, you know, climate change mitigation, we need to reduce emissions and so on. But we also can harness some of the opportunities from the ocean in terms of adapting To, um, to to climate change, you know, in terms of building that resilience and biodiversity support, for example, coral reefs are a great way of, uh, you know, uh, stopping those, you know, storm surges. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, there's also seagrass and mangroves that are really great ecosystems to to restore and to help us to, to um, you know, to, to get ready for, you know, climate change and be better able to withstand the effects of climate change. And, the, you know, the, all these co-benefits are often not talked about that these nature-based solutions can bring. And they can really help to, you know, clean the ocean, so help to kind of, uh, you know, drive that pollution away. But they can also help to restore biodiversity and help to fight climate change. And policymakers are really need to start embracing that opportunity in terms of these nature-based solutions, the blue carbon that we talked about. And it's really important to embed that within a holistic approach that also includes coastal communities so that there's also that social and community dimension. And I think that's the way how you know, nature-based solutions can really be seen as a great way of helping us tackle these three crises. So Andrea, the maritime industry today, it needs to decarbonize at speed. This is coming from regulation, from financing, from Uh, end customers. So there's a lot of demand from different stakeholders. How do you see that the uh, marine decarbonization can contribute to the blue economy? What you just said is absolutely um, visible. Decarbonization is is now central in any company who's working uh, in, the, in the marine business. Uh, certainly central is a cornerstone of our own strategy also as Varsity. And we've seen picking up pace, getting to the top of the agenda very quickly. 
in in uh, one to two years. The outcome of, of such interest is it's extremely important for the, for the blue economy. It will contribute tangibly to reducing emissions, essentially mitigating impact of climate change on oceans, coastal communities, acidification. I would also add that it's not just of course decarbonization technically refers to the reduction of, uh, of CO2 equivalent emissions, but uh, it goes along very well also with the continued effort to improve air quality. Just an example of that, the IMO voted to, to, to create a SECA zone uh, in, in the Mediterranean Sea. So these are very tangible examples of how this, this continued effort and focus on, on, on decarbonization are, are actually helping um, the, I would say the oceans. Uh, creating also a more positive view on, on the outlook. But of course, at the same time, they, they also open up opportunity for investments because the, the old decarbonization story connects very well with the need of new sources of energy. So using the oceans to, uh, for renewable energy generation um, is also attracting investments. And uh, I would say, generally speaking, also creating jobs, uh, particularly in uh, coastal areas and, and those in those countries that actually are looking at this holistically. I think we can agree that we need all hands on deck to ensure healthy oceans for the future. In this context, collaboration, regulation and governance are crucial. We will tell you how after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back. Recently, the United Nations General Assembly has highlighted the importance of the Law of the Sea Convention and pointed out that governments, ocean-based industries and investors need to make conservation, protection and climate resilience a top priority. So how important is collaboration and partnership in this context? We've talked about collaboration in general earlier, but uh, really to make an impact. Martin, would you have any further thoughts on this? Yes, I think it's absolutely vital. And I want to give you one example of how this plays out in the ocean economy. So we have seagrass, for example. You know, runoff from farms introduces chemicals into the water and that then damages or kills seagrass. Then we have global heating, you know, talked about, you know, climate change. That causes marine heat waves, they damage seagrass. And then, you know, the loss of the kind of seagrass meadows that we see as a result, they continue to kind of uh, you know, reduce the um, you know uh, you know reduce the ability of seagrass to help uh, coral reefs and other ecosystems, and that then affects nature and biodiversity. So we need to create a holistic approach that can help us kind of understand these interlinkages between these sources of these crises and their impacts, and that then will then help you know the decision makers, the practitioners. Uh, to address these uh, you know, crises together and not just one by one, not just kind of isolated. And one of these approaches is the source-to-sea approach. It really highlights the linkage between land, freshwater, coastal and marine ecosystems. And that really encourages cooperation between the upstream and the downstream actors and really helps to kind of coordinate between these actors and, and sectors, countries and so on. And what is so important about this source-to-sea approach is it can help investors as well. It can help corporates and policymakers and the communities, and, and they are talked about you know jobs and working with coastal communities to really address these water-related challenges together. For example, plastic and chemical pollution. You know, you can only solve these problems if you work in a collaborative way. And Andrea I know mentioned earlier the need for collaboration. And in finance, we see that a lot. For example, the you know blue bonds. We had blue bonds already in the Seychelles and in Belize. 
And it's really uh, these kind of collaborations and they bring together all different stakeholders. It's not just, you know, it's, it's government, it's private sector, it is uh, civil society organizations. And the private sector has now really followed suit and, uh, you know, the Nordic Investment Bank, for example, they issued a blue bond um, kind of to help to, you know, rehabilitate the uh, Baltic Sea. Uh, then we have in the shipping industry, the Poseidon principles. This is an innovative way to kind of finance shipping decarbonization. And then there's also, you know, all these different banks, you know, coming together to decarbonize um, and help to decarbonize and help to incentivize decarbonization of shipping by, you know, making it, uh, you know, much more uh, important uh, for banks to kind of report annually on the carbon intensity of their shipping portfolios, for example. So it's these kind of innovative financing mechanisms that kind of are starting to turn the tide. You mentioned that regulation is fragmentary. Also, the World Bank has pointed to this challenge. It specifically cites the example of coastal zone management or support to coastal fisheries being diluted by uncontrolled sand mining, ill-sited ports, aquaculture farms or unregulated tourism. So how do we ensure better governance here? Yeah, you highlight some really crucial problems uh, here with this, you know, this lack of a comprehensive strategy. And I would go back to the source to sea approach as one way of, you know, how we can approach governance in future. Um, you know, the World Ocean Summit, we're going to talk about, for example, you know, what city cities can do and city governments can do to work better with other stakeholders to address some of these source to sea uh, problems and develop a source to sea approach. And why is this so important? Because it means that we have a value chain approach. You, you, you mentioned some of these kind of piecemeal problems and piecemeal solutions to it. A source of C approach is about looking at the whole value chain. And we already have this in the climate change discussion. You look, for example, at emissions. We have this focus now on scope three emissions. You know, everyone talks about this. It's so important to kind of look at your value chain and so on. And that's also going to come to nature and pollution. And that's going to be vital for the ocean economy as well. So we have the EU taxonomy, for example, that is now looking at um, water, marine resources, is looking at the transition to a circular economy, pollution, biodiversity. These are all additions to what the EU defines as sustainable activities. So it's absolutely vital that corporations also now examine the whole value chain, not just for you know emissions, scope three, but also looking at water risks, for example, to what extent they implement the circular economy, and these kind of things. And that's really going to have a massive impact. And it also shows that regulators and governance can have a can have a real impact on how businesses operate in the ocean economy and can help really to help organizations and, and corporations to assess their material risks as well that come from their value chain and that are connected uh, to the ocean. And Andrea, how does the regulation framework and improving that look from your perspective? The regulation framework to me has to be part of a comprehensive strategy. I would say that we should look at the ocean the same way we look at decarbonization. It's a global problem and and, and therefore uh, it's essential that uh, coordination at global level is achieved. So for the air that I know the best, like, like shipping for instance, IMO plays a vital role in ratifying more than coming up with brilliant new ideas, ratifying the, the kind of uh, messages that the market's already bringing forward. For, for With this respect, organizations like Getting to Zero Coalition, for instance, are a perfect example where you bring in players from different sides of the economy, connecting uh, energy companies with shippers, ship owners, cargo owners, technology providers, and really trying to figure out what is possible. So then then uh, bodies like the IMO can uh, more easily 
uh, drive through uh, the change required. I think that, that is one important aspect. Another important aspect to me is uh, increasing transparency, transparency and accountability. That, that is, I think, essential also to, to put us on this kind of path that was mentioned earlier of um, changing a bit the storyline of, of the ocean from, you know, everything is gloom and bad to actually this is a massive opportunity uh, in which we, we all need to believe and, and invest. And finally, I think as part of bringing forward this impact on regulation, public participation is essential. We often talked about the impact of the ocean on coastal areas. That's always been the case in the, in the past. It will be even more going forward. And therefore, winning the support from the public, explaining the potential and turning around the story and showing that a blue economy is something positive for the ocean is not exploitation the ocean is rather creating stabilizing um, the current environment improving the current situation and actually creating more opportunities all of this i think is also essential to get this kind of regulations through Uh, coming to the end of the discussion let's have a look at the sustainable development goals which were mentioned earlier sdg number 14 it targets the maritime environment directly and here we need to reduce marine pollution and acidification restore and protect the uh, ecosystems conserve coastal areas and marine areas and not only that we also have to end subsidies contributing to overfishing and increase economic benefits from sustainable use of marine resources so that's quite a lot happening there i'd like to ask both of you in your mind what are the top three things that we can do in the short term, to get closer to reaching these targets. Andrea, maybe you go first. The ones you've mentioned are already essential. Overfishing, the protection of marine areas, reducing marine pollution, absolutely, these are clear targets. If I had to um, mention something in addition to this, I would say investing in research and development, ocean-related research and development, promote sustainable ocean-based industries and expanding in ocean literacy, expanding on the knowledge of of what the ocean is, what it can give uh, for future generations, and how to, let's say, redefine the relationship we have with the ocean. And Martin, from your perspective. First of all, Atta, you mentioned reducing marine pollution and acidification. Then, you know, you mentioned the need to restore and protect ecosystems is another key SDG 14 target. And for that, uh, you know, it's really vital to build these blue carbon markets. It's really important that we help to, you know, harness the ocean's ability to sequester carbon. We have uh, to build on this and we have to tell the story as well of the co-benefits of restoring these ecosystems in terms of, uh, you know, generating employment, skills, community well-being, uh, you know, climate change, adaptation, resilience as, as well. And then finally, the need to kind of conserve coastal marine areas. And for that, uh, I think in the short term, uh, but also in the medium term, we need to make sure that we get a robust high seas treaty, really keeping the pressure on building that. And it's this target 30 by 30, you know, protecting 30% of uh, uh, land and ocean areas by 2030. And it's it's really important that the high seas are not forgotten and that, you know, actually, you know, uh, we can't deliver this 30% target without the high seas. They are outside of national jurisdiction and they cover 64% of the world's ocean. So it's really important to build a legal mechanism for creating marine protected areas in the high seas. With that, we have come to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much, Martina and Andrea. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to everyone for listening and paying attention. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. 
I'm Atte Palomäki and today we went beyond business. You've been listening to Beyond Business with Vatsila. This podcast is produced by Spoon Finland and recorded on location in Helsinki.